All right. Uh, welcome to this episode of the Project Idealism podcast. Uh, for this episode, uh, I am joined by uh, astronaut Clayton Anderson, who spent five months on the International Space Station, and he is going to talk to me all about um, the, I assume, amazing human experience of making it to outer space. So Clayton, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So I was thinking we could get started. Uh, I would love to just hear, uh, maybe you could, we could start this off by you walking us through what it felt like and what the experience was like the first time that you rode a space shuttle into space. And um, you know, maybe start with waking up that morning and, and ending up in, in space, <laughs> what that felt like. Sure. Uh, you know, the, the day of launch is rather scripted for astronauts. Uh, lots of things have to happen on a timeline, right, in order to have you dressed and ready to head to the pad in order to make uh, launch time and all that good stuff. And so the first time for me was very unique and very new. Everything was new and different. And uh, I don't really remember how poorly or how well I slept that night. I imagine it wasn't too hot. Um, because, you know, the excitement, the anticipation of what's going to happen to you for the – and for me, it was not just that day, right? I was looking at five to six months of space. So I had lots of unknowns running through my head and lots of anxiety. I didn't have any fear, but I had lots of anxiety. So um, when we did wake up, you know, you, you basically – you were told by your commander what you were going to wear for breakfast, and breakfast is very staged. As a matter of fact, we typically don't eat a lot of stuff just because um, of the way the day is going to plan out and whether or not you think you're going to puke your brains out when you get into zero gravity and that sort of thing. And, and so I remember uh, vividly that I was told to wear blue jeans because your legs are pretty much covered behind the table, but we had to wear all the same shirts. Uh, there were short sleeve blue denim shirts with our mission logo on them, and then there's a big cake. Uh, when you come in for breakfast and the cameras are in your face and they're taking video and they they move to each astronaut and you have to wave to the camera and right. and act like you're you know ready to eat this cake which no one ever eats <laughs> I've never seen anyone ever eat this cake that's decorated with your mission logo and and once breakfast is over there are various meetings that the the different astronauts in the different roles go to for example for example the commander and the pilot and the mission specialist, the flight engineer, they have to go to weather briefings and they have to find out the shape of the vehicle and, and that sort of thing. And um, it's just for me, it was one of those things where I had lots of time to kill. You know, I had, I had everything was ready to go. My crew notebook was ready. I knew what I needed to take with me in my helmet bag to the orbiter, and, which wasn't much. And so I was kind of wandering around the astronaut crew quarters killing time and and that doesn't help you when you have anxiety <laughs> um but eventually you get the call and you see on your clock because you have a, a paper schedule that says here's when clay anderson is supposed to go put his diaper on and his long johns and his liquid cooling garment and head into the suit up room mm -hmm. and that's when it really became real for me when i was sitting in my bedroom uh alone with my thoughts sitting naked on the bed trying to put on a, uh, a diaper, a taped-on diaper, and get ready to go then with my long johns and walk down the hall. And, but, it, but the excitement was building at the same time, you know. And 
you get in there, you have a suit tech who suits you up, and, and you, you do a pressure check on your uh, launch and entry suit to make sure that everything's good. And then you just sit and relax and, and hang for a while, and eventually everybody's suited up, and you're doing a little chit-chatting, and you can tell who's more nervous than others. And mm-hmm. those that have flown before, you know, it's kind of a, a rite of passage that the younger youngest of us are a little nervous. But eventually you're suited up, you're ready to walk out the door. The commander reminds you of the order. He reminds you of where to put your hand when you wave so that you don't block the face of the guy behind you. And, uh, you know, all those little things that no one would have ever thought to tell you, perhaps, uh, unless you had a veteran uh, crew member that's explaining that sort of stuff to you. You grab your things, you you walk down the hallway, there's people cheering as you get on the elevator, and uh, you go down the elevator and walk outside down the ramp to, that people see on TV and you wave again to the folks that are snapping your photo and you hop on the Astro van and they give you a, a, uh, some water that you're afraid to drink because you don't want to have to pee right before you, right after you get in your seat and strap down because laying on your back and having to pee in your diaper is a, a skill that is not uh, a given. It's It's an acquired <laughs> technique. So... All that stuff was going on, and we arrived at the pad. We walked around the vehicle. It's it's live. It's breathing. It's got hisses and noises and groans and creaks as the this explosive rocket fuel is pulsing through its pipes. And uh, we hop on the elevator to go up to the 190 foot level. Um, and that was when my story was was the most interesting. If you if you want me to tell it, but there's a telephone on the at the top of the 195 foot level, and when you go for your uh, terminal countdown test, they call it, your your dress rehearsal one month before launch, they show you where this telephone is, and they say, if you dial 8 on the phone and then dial a phone number, this line will connect you with anybody you want to talk to. Okay. And, as you, and you know your order to get on the shuttle, and you want to call, or at least I did, I very much wanted to call my wife and tell her I loved her one last time before I got on the vehicle, and that day when it was was my turn, I first used the bathroom, which is the other thing you want to do that's critical before you get on the vehicle. <laughs> and once my time in the toilet was finished, then I waited in line patiently for my time with the telephone. And when it was my time on the phone, I dialed eight, and I dialed my wife's cell phone number, and, I, and the phone rang, and the phone rang, and I hear my wife's voice say, hello, and I say, hey, honey, it's me. Oh, hello, hello. And then she starts to sob. She can, I can't hear him. I can't hear him. I, I can't. <laughs> right? So she's freaking out because it's my first time to launch into space. I'm trying to make my last phone call. She's with all my family and dearest friends. And the connection, for some reason, is bad. So I'm standing there holding the phone thinking, holy cow, I need to finish this because someone's waiting behind me. Should I hang up the phone and try again and risk never talking to her? Well, it's obvious that I'm not talking to her now. So I take a risk, I hang up the phone, I quickly redial the number, I hear her voice again, and she's crying. I say, hey, honey, it's me. Oh, I can hear you. And once she could hear me, then, you know, the world, the weight of the world was lifted off of our shoulders, and we were able to have a, a very short conversation. I was able to tell her how much I loved her and how much I loved my son, Cole, and my daughter, Sutton, and that uh, I would talk to them soon from space, and everything was going to be fine, and, and not to worry. And then when you hang up that phone and you go get on the shuttle, that's a pretty emotional time uh, because you really don't know if you're going to talk to them again or ever see them again, but you're so focused with the next several steps, which is getting into the orbit, getting into your chute, parachute, 
checking your gear, climbing in the hatch, getting strapped down your seat, and etc. Uh, so that was pretty much the the mo- most emotional part of the of the morning. And then I was simply lying in my seat on my back, trying not to or worrying about that I was going to have to go to the bathroom. And, of course, eventually in a two-hour wait, oh, yeah, I had to go pee. And, and the only choice I have is to lay on my back and try to figure out how to get it into my diaper. And, and I'm thinking about Niagara Falls. I'm thinking about r- river water running down a stream. I'm thinking about turning on the faucet at the house. I'm doing anything I can, and I'm just about there, just about ready to be able to soil my diaper. And the commander calls me on the intercom says, Clay, how you doing down there? And I'm going, oh, I'm fine, but you just broke my train of thought. (laughs) So I went back to the entire process again, and I was not successful. But fortunately for me, we came out of the launch hold to the the T-minus-8 countdown. And once you get into that portion, you're not thinking about going to the bathroom anymore. You're thinking about, holy cow, we're getting ready to light this dude and head into outer space. So that was kind of a synopsis of my... (laughs) first launch day in the history of my life right so okay so then the countdown starts and right I, and, and i imagine you uh, start feeling the the rumble <laughs> of the space shuttle well you know when the, when everything starts during that eight minutes there's a lot of things you listen for that let you know that things are work going as planned you know the commander has some certain calls and switch throws as does the pilot um and you're listening for that cadence that you've practiced hundreds of times in a simulator and the nice thing is, is the more that cadence goes according to plan, the more relaxed you become because you know what to expect. And, and of course, I'm sitting on the mid-deck of the orbiter on my back between Danny Olivas and J.R. Jim Riley. Who, uh, J.R. was a veteran space flyer. Danny and I were both classmates in 98 and rookie astronauts. And so, for me at least, sitting between the two of them, um, I was just as excited as they seemed to be. Um, and then when the engines actually light at T-minus six seconds, you know you know you're getting ready to go, but you really could abort within that six seconds if you had to. Yep. It's when the solid rocket motors light at T-minus zero at liftoff that once those things light, you're going somewhere. Okay. And so to feel that power and that rumble and that acceleration that begins, and, and, and I mean the whole place shakes, and you hear it, you feel it, you sense it, uh, and I looked over at Jim Riley, and he gives me a thumbs up, and he sticks his hand fist out, and we do a fist bump. And, um, you know, the excitement at that moment is just tremendous as you realize that you're actually going to go into space. So it's the next the next eight and a half minutes of the most thrilling roller coaster ride you could ever imagine. And And when you – so when you're taking off and you're actually in flight, are you – can you – are you seeing out the window? Do you see anything? Is it loud? Um, is well, the whole thing very loud and, and very dynamic? But you, we on the mid deck we have no windows. Okay. Well, we have a small one, but it's covered for launch, so we can't see anything. Okay. But we can listen to the guys on the flight deck, the commander, the pilot, and the two uh, flight engineers who are up there. You can listen to their calls, and 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 they'll then they have a few seconds at times to tell you okay, hey, it's blue outside, I see the smoke cloud, there's blah, blah, blah. So they kind of give you a, a little bit of a play-by-play interspersed among their technical calls that let you know what they're seeing and what they're sensing. But we're all feeling the same thing, and that's a huge dynamic rumble with a lot of noise. And, and how many people are, were, were on, the, on the space shuttle altogether? We flew with seven, so okay. uh, four on the flight deck, three on the mid-deck, and then I was going to replace 
Sonny Williams on the station, so she would then take my place on the shuttle when they came home. So okay. it was seven up and seven down. And so you go up, and you said it takes and so it takes eight minutes to to leave the Earth's atmosphere. Is that right? No, it's eight and a half minutes to get to to outer space, or okay. even actually less. It's eight and a half minutes to get to the lowest point in your orbit. Okay. And so you clear the atmosphere reasonably quickly, and once you get to 62 uh, nautical miles, that's kind of the definition of being an astronaut. That's when you hit space, the, or what they define as the the altitude that is space. Right. And so can you, is there a moment where you're suddenly, oh my God, I'm in space right now. I've been working like, and we'll, talk, we'll talk about your, uh, we'll jump backwards in a second. Um, Cause I know you have a really, uh, really interesting story about how the, the, the path you took to becoming an astronaut, but is there that there's there is that sort of moment where you're oh my I did it I'm here I have I'm in outer space Absolutely there is and and it's give that moment is given to you by the lack of gravity so as you ride in the shuttle after the solid rocket motors peel off after about 2 minutes the ride smooths down considerably because now you're on liquid fueled engines and not solid propellant like the solid rocket boosters so now the ride's smoother but the acceleration is increasing every second and you're going to pull the most G's that you'll pull on a shuttle flight, which is right around three, just a little under three. Okay. So you're getting to weigh, you're beginning to weigh more and more, three times your weight. And so you're getting scrunched in your seat. You're there. It's kind of uncomfortable. Uh, it's very bearable, but it's uncomfortable. And you know that that acceleration is going to continue until you hit three times your weight, at which point then you get the gift of zero gravity. So when you hit orbit, and the engines, the computer tells the engines to shut down. You hear a very quiet hit. Quiet hit. And now you're in zero gravity. You're in space. And you immediately know you're in space because everything around you is floating. And if somebody didn't leave something tied down, it floats by your face. And I looked. It was funny because here I was focusing on this pressure and the, and the increased weight, you know, and the acceleration. I was getting uncomfortable, so I was having to breathe deeper. It was a lot of work to, to stay with my breathing. And the next thing I do is I look to my right and I look to my left, and both of those seats that used to have astronauts in them are empty. <laughs> and, the, and the only thing I could think of was, oh, my God, those seats are empty. I better do something astronauty. So then it became, okay, what's my job? Now my job is to follow my role and my procedures that I've been rehearsing for months and I began to take my helmet off and my gloves and hook them together. And the coolest thing was when I took my glove off, I mean my helmet off, and I took it off my head, I put it in front of my face and let go. And it stayed right there. <laughs> <laughs> and that was cool. That was cool. And that was when I knew I was in outer space. Wow. Amazing. All it right. was very amazing. That, that sounds incredible. So, uh, so thank you for for walking us through that detail. That's, that's great. Um, so leading up to that moment, I, I read a little bit about you before we spoke, obviously, and I read that you had been rejected by the NASA astronaut program 15 times before you were finally accepted. Is this, did I read that correctly? You're close. I was rejected 14 times and picked on the 15th. Okay. So. And so from first application 
to acceptance was how how long of a time was that? Fifteen years. Fifteen years, and that whole fifteen right. years, you said to yourself, "I'm gonna." I got rejected. That's fine. I'm going to try again. Right. Mm-hmm. And now, I was either pretty stupid or pretty person, uh, <laughs> right. or both. Right. So I'll go with person with perseverance. I think wins <laughs> wins out on that one. Um, so just, I, I mean, that to me is that's amazing. What what and you were working at you were working at NASA during that fifteen years is that right? But you were but you you had not been accepted into the astronaut program. Is this is my right? I I'd been actually an engineer there for fifteen years. Right, I, my whole career, well actually I never worked anywhere else. I just worked at the Johnson Space Center in NASA okay. in Houston uh, for my entire career actually. Okay. Okay. And. Uh, and so you, this never, I mean, obviously, I'm assuming on time eight or nine or ten, the rejections started getting very frustrating, right? What kept <laughs> you, what kept you to keep applying? And in some ways, you're, you know, you're potentially setting yourself up for a uh, disappointment. I would imagine when rejection nine comes, it's like really a bummer, right? I mean, <laughs> so, well, um, can you just sort yeah. of touch on that a little bit in the... Sure. It was it was quite frustrating, especially when we got into the double digit rejection. So, at, at first, I hadn't been at Johnson for very long, and you know I hadn't made a mark. I wasn't a PhD chemist who discovered a new element. I wasn't a military jet jockey who had tested the latest uh, uh, warplane. You know, I wasn't a a uh, I don't know, a geologist who, you know, uncovered some new stone or something. You know, I had to I had to earn my reputation by working hard and doing the jobs they gave to me and doing them to the the best of my ability and then hoping someday that I would get enough exposure and enough credibility that someone would consider me a viable candidate. So over those years I it was easy. Once you did your first application, and of course those days it wasn't on a computer, you had to actually get out a typewriter and right. put a piece of paper and get your white out and, and type the Stuff and try to fit it in the small space they gave you. And if you made a mistake, you had to white out over it and retype it. And so it was kind of difficult to gather all the initial information that was required. But once you did that, then it became a, an exercise in simply keeping your application updated. And honestly, for me, the first few years, I didn't really have to update much because I wasn't accomplishing much um, that I guess was astronaut worthy. Okay. It wasn't until... I got into the seven, eight, and nine, as you referred to, that you know I was beginning to wonder if I was ever going to get an opportunity at this. I looked hard at myself and my career, and, and what could I possibly do to be a better candidate for an astronaut? And that's when I started to begin to do things like uh, think about getting a pilot's license and getting scuba certified and those sort of things. Because previously, I was active in my community. I was active in my church. I, I did a good job at work. I was a participant in uh, athletic leagues all around uh, Houston and the Johnson Space Center. And apparently those things were not enough, right? They were looking for my technical prowess. And when you're just an aerospace engineer working in a big organization, sometimes unless you discover something new, you know, you come up with a new stable orbit rendezvous technique or something like that, yeah. uh, you know, you're not going to get much notoriety. So as I got 
to the point where I was beginning to get frustrated. Then I looked hard. I was married now. Um, so my wife was interested in doing things like scuba diving. So we began to pursue those opportunities, which I think probably helped. I don't know that they're required or anything, but I think expanding your, your sure. knowledge and your experience base is something that they look for. So uh, in the 13th year, that was the year uh, I was ready to quit. And, you know, for for me and for my family, quitting's not an option. It's not failure's not an option. It's quitting's not an option. And um, my wife and I had actually flown to Seattle. We had some very dear friends that were up there that we were going to go visit, and I was actually going to look, look for work. And the friend of mine who I went to high school with was a multimillionaire with Microsoft and worked for a fellow named Bill Gates. Okay. And as we spent a few days with him, uh, he made some suggestions, you know, bowling aerospace and this, that, and the other. And um, I was trying to lay out a plan of how I might go about seeking employment up there. When I got back to Houston with my wife, Susan, I went to work the next day. And that was the first day I, the phone rang and Dwayne Ross from the astronaut selection office called and said, hey, uh, we'd like to interview to be, you to be an astronaut. And that was in year 13. Okay. Uh, once I heard those words, I said, are you kidding? Of course I'll interview and I never looked back. Yeah. My flame was renewed. Uh, I was ready to apply for the next 15 years if I had to. Okay. Okay. And so you got the interview on try 13, but you did not go into space on try 13. That took two more tries after the interview. Is this right? Yeah, it was frustrating. The year 13 was the year that they selected the largest class in the history of NASA. They chose 44 astronauts. Okay. And, you know, when you're trying to get a coveted astronaut slot in the class that they pick is 44, there's two things to think. They say, oh, 44, I got a good shot of getting in. And then when you find out they picked 44 and you weren't one of them, you know, it gives you cause to think that, holy cow, uh, you know, 44 selections and I wasn't one of them, that, that's not looking good. So uh, at that point, I talked to a couple people notably uh, the flight surgeons that interviewed me because they give you kind of a debrief. And, yep. and the word I got back was two things. They weren't sure of my technical background. Apparently in my interview, my actual live interview, I didn't discuss with them enough of what I had achieved technically at NASA. Okay. And the second part was I had had, um, I was a huge athlete, of course, and I had had some back surgery. I'd injured my back playing basketball. And I ultimately needed to have back surgery in 19. Uh, 94. Okay. And so they knew that, of course, and they wanted to, what the word I got was that they wanted to give me two more years um, with a bad back to see, make sure that everything was correct and everything okay. was okay. okay. And so that made me feel a little better because my back was doing quite well. And I continued to apply. Year 14, they didn't select astronauts. And then year 15, um, was a selection year, and so I got interviewed again, and this time I was one of the first to report for interviews, not one of the last. Okay, okay. And so then after 15 attempts, they finally said, all right, fine, you want to go to space? We will send you there for five months, <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. you can, and you can you can go to the International Space Station. So, Something uh, like that, yeah. <laughs> So you uh, you walked us through in the beginning the the the, the launch of your first flight, um, and so you persevered for that fifteen years leading up to that point, and then you did spend five months in the International Space Station, right? Um, exactly. 
Uh-huh. So 150 days, 14 hours, 18 minutes, and 23 seconds. <laughs> not, not that you were counting, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, and so, what? And so, uh, what does one do when they're uh, in the International Space Station for uh, for five months? Well, it's actually for me since it was my first time in space. I was very busy. Uh, I always had plenty to do. Um, I recall only two days when I actually thought to myself, I'm a little bored today. Uh, they kept me very busy and everything was very level in terms of scheduling. So I never really had any days when I was bored and I never had really had any days when I was totally overworked. So for me, the work pace was very, very good. Uh, it was, I looked forward every day to doing something new, although some of the tasks get a little uh, repetitive. But for the most part, my increment was very, very well thought out and very spaced out. And I don't know how much of that was chance and how much was planned, but from the time in June when I arrived at the station and the first crew left after they dropped me off, they spent about 10 days there and left, I immediately had things to look forward to. Um, the first thing we had to look forward to was my first spacewalk in my career. The second thing was the arrival of the crew of STS-118 and two more spacewalks for me. The third thing was moving the, using, flying the robotic arm to move a docking port from one module to another to prepare for a new module that would come later. So everything kind of worked out for me. I had big milestones to look forward to. Uh, and once I checked something off the list, I had something else to turn right. to. And before you knew it, it was my fifth month, and it was time to launch the vehicle that was going to take me home. Man. And so and tell me, so you mentioned in there that one of the things you did was a spacewalk. So, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that must be another amazing first experience right up there with the, your first launch. I mean, is this, would this be a correct understanding? Yeah, um, doing a spacewalk is the ultimate for, at least for me, in my opinion. I know some of the military guys will tell you that being able to land a space shuttle is the ultimate. But I, since I would never have that opportunity, for me... And guys like me, I believe that doing a spacewalk is, is the thing to do in space. And it's everything it's cracked up to be. It's hard work. It's mentally exhausting. But it's the most fantastic experience that anyone can ever have, I think. Man, I bet it's amazing. So let me – one of the things that I, I wondered to myself before we started talking is, does having that experience of, of going into space, of doing a spacewalk, and of – viewing earth from that perspective does it have an influence on your worldview about things like politics and war and just people in general and cultures and and if so how does it influence that worldview well a lot of astronauts will talk to you about the orbital perspective Okay. You know, we all experience it. We go to orbit and we get a unique perspective that many, many humans do ne will never get the opportunity to experience. And I guess part of our role is to bring that experience and that perspective back and try to share it. I know some of the guys are trying to capitalize on that orbital perspective and and saving the world and saving the environment. And that's all good. That's all great stuff. And I'm glad they're doing it. Um, but for me... As I looked at the Earth, I did look at it from many different aspects, the first of which, and the most important, I think, for me was 
you don't see any lines. Uh, although nowadays, with when you watch the Earth at night, you can see lines. You know, from North Korea to South Korea, you you can see a dictatorship above a free country because the lights are almost all off on the dictatorship and the free country is lit. Those things become instrumental in your thought processes, I think, that of how you view the earth. And for me, you cannot see most of the lines that border between Canada and America or Mexico and the USA or Argentina or Brazil and whatever the countries that are adjacent. You cannot see those lines. And so you get a perspective that says, you know what? If everybody else on earth had this opportunity to see the planet from above, I don't think we'd fight each other nearly as much as we do. Yeah. Given that perspective, that's important, and that, that's a great realization for, for people to be able to come to. The other one was, as I looked at the planet and I saw the thinness of our atmosphere, and, and I saw the deforestation in South America, and I saw the deserts in Australia and Africa, I began to think more about being a better steward of my planet. And by that, I mean, I'm just a man, but I can do, I can recycle more, I can... Uh, I can pollute less. Um, there are things you can do, and that's another orbital perspective that some of the astronauts are trying to bring to the forefront of protecting our planet and being more unified as a planet. And those are all good things to do. So uh, that view, the opportunity to see the Earth from that perspective is, is really huge, at least it was for me. And the other thing it did was strengthen my faith in God. And, and I know religion's not necessarily a popular topic these days with everyone but for me i've been a faith a man of faith my entire life and to see that beauty and to see what we were able to do and accomplish with technology uh just it just strengthened my faith in god so yeah well i mean what i was hoping to hear was your exact perspective so anything you wanted to say is obviously welcome um it sounds just amazing. I know we need to, to, to wrap up here, but if you don't mind, I'd love to take just a couple more minutes. So now uh, you, you, you ended up going to space one, uh, one more time, as I understand, mm -hmm. in a second. Right. Was, it, was it two years later? or was I... It was just, well, it was about two and a half because I landed in November of 07 and we flew again in April of 2010. Okay, okay. Uh, and you are, and now you're a retired astronaut, so you, right. uh, you don't anticipate going to space, at least through NASA. Um, and you are now a speaker and an author. Um, maybe we'll just kind of can wrap up. You take a few minutes to talk about what it's, I mean, gosh, it's kind of like you've set a pretty high bar for yourself now. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that's actually very true. Today is the one year anniversary of my retirement from NASA. So a year ago today, I was walking out of that facility for the very last time. Um, so that's a, a big milestone for me that I survived my first year. Um, but yeah, it, it is quite an interesting uh, perspective for me now. People say, well, what's your dream job? Well, I had my dream job. I retired from my dream job. Well, well, oh, oh, you know, because everybody wants to look for their next dream job, and I'm trying to find out right now. And, and so far it's been through public speaking and trying to motivate people about NASA and, and why it's important that we have a space program in America. And I try to motivate people about teamwork and leadership and those sort of things. You know, I don't know if I'm a great classical leadership speaker that's on these speakers' bureau circuits, but... I guarantee you I'm entertaining and I have some great stories and 
uh, hopefully I can leave people with a message that does give them some some ideas or some thoughts to consider about uh, working with teams or being a leader or, or just persevering and finding your passion and going for it. So in order to do that, I have a book coming out hopefully in December of 2014. Okay. Uh, my working title is called Taking Up Space. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure the publishing company is thrilled with that title, so we're going to be looking at some of their suggestions and seeing how we might be able to uh, make it into an appealing book for readers. I think it's different than most astronaut books. I think it's more of a human look, a more personal look. Um, I tell some stories that happened to me that I don't know that many astronauts would be willing to tell about themselves. So we'll just see how it does. Uh, I'm very active on social media with at uh, Astro Clay being my Twitter handle. I'd encourage everyone that is interested to follow me there. And I have a, a fan page on Facebook that people can check. It's also Astro Clay. And then my website is www.astroclay.com. So Great. And as I, I learn this, uh, these new skills of how to market myself, how to get my word out there and maybe get some more speaking opportunities, I look forward to the book coming out. And then uh, I hope to write another book, a children's book, and then, which is, you know, what do astronauts do? They leave and then they write books and children's books. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping mine are better, but I'm also going to do a picture. I have a plan for a picture book. Um, I'm not sure what the schedule for that might be, but being the only astronaut, the first and only astronaut from the state of Nebraska, uh, I'm working with a friend who's a cartoonist, and we're considering putting together a book that combines the two, so we'll just see how that goes. Fantastic, and I will, of course, yeah. be sure to put uh, links to your Twitter handle and your Facebook page and your website in our show notes. Uh, oh, great. I appreciate that. And I, uh, I guess we will wrap it up and I will just say, uh, Clayton, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Uh, I appreciate it. And it was, I mean, really inspiring to hear, to, to hear your story. I really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Just tell all your, uh, fans out there to keep looking up. All right. Well, thanks a bunch. All right. Thank you, sir.